Hello, and welcome back to Giant Talk. Uh, I'm Roger. Uh, those of you who've tuned in before will know that I'm your friendly giant from There Be Giants, who uh, is the host of this fantastic podcast uh, with great guests and great conversation. And I'm hugely chuffed to welcome back an old friend to the podcast, uh, in that we've been friends for a long time, not that he's old, uh, Brett. So welcome, Brett from PM2. How are you doing? Glad to be here and glad to not be old. <laughs> Fantastic. So we're going to kick around something today which we both get asked an awful lot, pretty much, I think, every time. Certainly I go into a client. I was with a client last week and they were asking me on my views on this, this particular subject. And it's the, uh, for some, quite thorny issue of whether... OKRs should play any sort of role in relation to reward, performance management, performance evaluation, that whole piece, okay? So, Brett, I believe you have some views on this. Do you want to to, to share them with the listeners? Well, sure, but I'm kind of going to state the obvious. And and the obvious is uh, where this question about linking OKRs and uh, rewards and recognition comes from is probably John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters. And mm -hmm. in that book, he makes a number of uh, propositions about the characteristics of OKRs, one of which is they shouldn't be linked to personal performance. And uh, there are many elements of his book that are awesome, but there's there are many also that uh, don't test uh, pass the test of reality. And I think this is one of them where people have blindly accepted it as if it's a doctrine and it isn't. It's John's opinion. And I've actually had this debate with John uh, many times. Uh, it's his opinion. And in some cases, uh, it makes sense. But I think that it can't be taken as an absolute rule to be used in all cases. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that his his world in which he in which he lives is Silicon Valley, isn't he? He's one of the most prolific investors in Silicon Valley, where the culture is arguably unique, you know, to to anywhere else in the world. You know, highly experimental. The the concept of failure is worn. You know, the number of failures you've had is worn like you know stripes on your arm, so to speak. Um, so it's a very different proposition, isn't it? Very different environment. Yeah, it is. I mean, ironically, I'm I'm calling you uh, in today from Silicon Valley. Uh, so maybe some of the uh, feng shui <laughs> stuff will leak through the windows here. Um, but in if you think it, so, this is going to go off in a left branch already. But if you think of when we set stretch targets, uh, you know, our, our key results are stretched goals. We often think of them in terms of the number as a stretch. But if you, you could think of it a, a different way. So uh, within any objective, there's a bunch of stuff that we know. And so often we'll set objectives around an activity that we know all the steps, like we have to hit a sales number or something. But then there's another type of objective where we know some of the steps, but not all of them. So the example is JFK's quote of, we're gonna put man on the moon you know, by the end of the decade. We knew mm -hmm. many of the steps. And we knew how to figure out the steps we didn't know, but we didn't know it all. And then you've got objectives that are super stretch. And, you know, I think of our friend Elon Musk, where he talks about, uh, you know, going to Mars. Well, there are very few of those steps we know. But the benefit of that latter type, uh, you know, Elon Musk's is 
it's a unifying call and it causes us to focus our efforts on something to begin figuring out what the steps are that we don't know. Well, if we set those objectives down for an individual, obviously we're going to have a different conversation with people around objectives where we know every step, you know, achieve the sales number compared to objectives where you know most of the steps, putting humankind on the moon or an objective that's a super stretch, let's go to Mars, it's a different conversation. It doesn't mean that we don't have a conversation. Uh, it has to do with not only what the conversation looks like, but um, how we accept risk of failure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that's the archetypal moonshot, isn't it? Um, you know, the lagging measure of success is we actually get to Mars. But the point is, that is an ab- that's, that, that's a beautiful outcome, but people just don't know what the steps are going to be that are going to take us there yet. Some of the technology hasn't even been invented yet. Right. I, you know, and I've had this armrest with John as well. I really don't like the moonshot metaphor because, <laughs> because unlike going to Mars, we knew all the steps. We knew that we had to get out of Earth orbit. We knew that yeah. we had to figure out a moon orbit. We knew that we had to figure out how to build a, uh, you know, a space uh, glove that could work at minus, you know, absolute zero um, or uh, how to, uh, build a, a a launch pad on the moon to take off from. Like we knew all of those things and all of them were solvable even at the beginning of the decade. So we knew all the steps and we had ideas about them. Things like, you know, true creativity, things like, you know, and a tangible one is going to Mars, but even stuff beyond that, like who would have thought that even, I don't know, chat GPT or cars would self-drive or, you know, those things at 1900 uh, or 1901, people would never have imagined. That's beyond, you know, that's that those objectives that are just dreamscapes, not moonshots, but beyond a moonshot. Yeah. Go beyond the moonshots. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a, there's a thought. Um, and so, Part of the problem is that we end up in, so this is really going sideways, but uh, often when organizations, and we've worked with Google X Labs, and in there they don't actually set measurable objectives for innovation. As soon as you set a measurable objective for innovation, you've killed all innovation. Uh, so no longer am I innovating on that moonshot, I'm just creating, I'm coloring inside the space. So true innovation is where uh, you don't have any expectations of the hard deliverable. I'm just going to work in this. So yeah, we've got examples of that, like accidents, like post-it notes. No one set up the example of the, the objective of creating glue that I could have in a piece of paper and I take off. Like, you know, all those stories mm-hmm. of accidental discoveries, penicillin and so forth. If you set up only and funded only measurable outcomes, you limit the degree of creativity. Um, if we take a look at what Toby has done with Shopify, uh, what he's done is sort of limitless creativity, like throwing money at things and just allowing the experiment to occur and afterwards discovering what things came out of that that uh, might be usable going forward. Mm-hmm. So again, all, this is a long way from the core topic. The core topic is think of their uh, of objectives being ones which are you know completely block and tackle. We can get that thing done. Some which I know all the steps, I just have to flesh it out going to the moon, and then ones which are uh, completely uh, uh, stretch goals without any defined steps to get there. Now, when I'm having a performance conversation with an individual about type one, 
I know all the steps and like sales, I'm just going to go get it done. You can see where that's a different conversation than one where I kind of know what the steps are, but I don't know how to get them done compared to ones where I don't even know what the steps are. So before we get into the gory detail, understand that the objective itself gives you some information about how that conversation might look. And just one of your points there, which I just would like to just unpack a bit, because I think it does lead into the reward conversation, was you said quite clearly, you know, as soon as you set an OKR for uh, innovation, you kill innovation. Um, Would you not want to set a key result that defines what success looks like if that experimentation has worked? Well, again, by defining the key result that defines success, you've create you've killed um, innovation. So now this is where it gets a bit fuzzy. So I think of you know the multiple generations of iPhone. Now, is that um, innovation for each next iPhone, or is it just operational excellence? I'm making an existing thing slightly better. So yeah, they keep on making the camera better and better and better. Is that innovation, or is that just operational excellence? That's a fuzzy line. Uh, and for my definition, I'm just going to say that's operational excellence. That's taking what already exists. Now, before the iPhone existed, that was innovation, right? Out of dirt came this. Now, and it wasn't, it was um, type two objective. In other words, I knew the steps to take. I knew some of the steps, like I knew uh, whatever it is, alligator, uh, crocodile glass existed. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. had to apply it. So I knew the steps. I just didn't know how to make them all happen. Uh, so the the issue is I'm talking about type three, just genuine innovation. Mm. As soon as you put a measurable outcome, you've now constrained it to just being operational excellence. I've just taken what already exists mm. and taken a step forwards. Mm-hmm. You see, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I I take a slightly different view because I think taking the uh, the iPhone as an example. If we're only classing innovation as that major step change, I think it then uh, disempowers a lot of people because there's there are okay, you call it operational excellence improvements and so on and so forth. But my my view is anyone can innovate, and that it, you know a lots of incremental innovations can lead up to quite a you know a sizable gain. Um, and I think there's there's almost by by saying it's only you know it, it's only it only applies to these things that come along once in a generation and are considered a major step change. I find that I think I think a lot of people can feel quite intimidated by that because they don't see themselves as this great thinker like Steve Jobs or or Elon Musk, and and therefore oh I can't innovate. No, it's it's, it's point. It's that's something that only only a very very few people can do and I, I i'm i'm kind of more on board with actually i think everybody has the opportunity to innovate and test well so um we're running on the cusp of um an oxford debating society conversation <laughs> about words so um let me give you this how about we say if there's um no uh if it's just operational excellence is we're going to call it a tactic yeah. If there's a degree of um, uh, change, we're going to call that innovation. And if there are no known steps, we're going to call that creativity. 
So innovation can, uh, so really all, all we're doing in this part of the conversation is debating where does the line of innovation end mm -hmm. so that people feel inspired to be innovative, but there's mm -hmm. gotta be something that describes what happens when we don't know what the steps are. And again, that's only because when I'm having a conversation with someone and I know roughly what the steps are, like I know I wanna make the yeah. iPhone better, customers say we need a better camera, you could call that innovation as we move that forward. Mm. I'm looking for that huge step change. So right now we think um, iPhones, we used to think, here's a good example. Uh, you know, bef I'm, I'm, and that guy that you refer to as being old before. So I remember when there weren't phone, cell phones, those were innovative, right? I remember when there was an iPhone, those were innovative. But at a certain point, it becomes uh, a yawner, like it exists already, nothing new. Yeah. What's interesting, and we'll have this in our next podcast, I hope, is even all your listeners can know that Google answered all questions five years ago. Now chat GPTs replaced that. Like the mm -hmm. idea of mm -hmm. a GPT, that was innovative. Like all the bits and pieces existed, but someone finally managed to figure out how to join those bits and pieces together into a usable tool that any person can interface with. So yeah. at a certain point in time, Google was that innovative thing. Now that's so five minutes ago, we now have the new innovative thing. And you wouldn't have imagined this happened you know, five or 10 years ago. We can't mm. imagine what the replacement for this, the, the iPhone and the iPad is, but there's mm. something out there that is truly innovative yeah. that's going to, 10 years from now, people can go, gosh, you used an iPhone and you thought that was cool. Gosh. Yeah, yeah it's holograms on your wrist or something like exactly. that, I should imagine. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so this brings me back to, for me, and I, 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 I quote my sources here, you know, McGregor and Doshi, who are um, two uh, researchers into the realm of organizational performance. Um, they wrote a paper a good few years ago, which has been a big influence on, on the approach that we take to, uh, to the work we do with clients. And they defined performance as falling into two camps. Okay. The first is tactical performance so that's the that's the type of performance which organizations you know are uh, can can measure with their eyes shut because it requires targets budgets quotas all that good stuff and that's fine and it absolutely has its place but then you've got adaptive performance and adaptive performance is what organizations really need to grow to 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 develop to innovate and that is about uh, our ability as an organization, as a team, and as individuals to grow and uh, to, 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 sorry, to learn. And as a result of that learning, apply what we've learned to uh, and revise our practice and, and have this iterative process of, of growth and progression going on. Um, and this is, you know, coming back to your, your point that you were just making a few moments ago. You know, it's this sort of um, in the area of innovation. It's this adaptive performance, which I think is something which is so vital. No matter whether you're an accountancy practice that does, you know, the same type of work, the same type for the for the same clients year in year out, or whether you're a you know a, a, a software developer that is you know that's that's developing the next thing to to replace. GPT, it, it it needs you need to have a level of adaptive performance in your business. Otherwise, 
you just stagnate and die these days because the pace is so fast. So when it comes down to, you know, defining the type of performance which we want to see in our people, certainly the way I uh, and 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 I know my team kind of coach our and, and advise our clients is to to think of it in 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 those in terms of those two definitions. Yeah, so that's uh, slightly different, but um, a, a good lens to look at. Uh, it's funny how you and I can read the same paper and <laughs> I read something different into it. So what I read is that the magic of OKRs is they are 100% adaptive performance. Because we're defining the outcome. Oh, they should be. Yeah. 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 Because, yeah. So even if I set an objective for something that's tactical, like yeah. uh, you know, closing trouble tickets or yeah. answering helpline calls or yeah. closing a sales transaction, in theory, it's tactical. Go back to my example of that's a type one objective where I know all the steps and I just have to. But what we're trying to do with OKRs is move away from a job description where I tell you step by step what you need to do. Now, job descriptions might work if you're cooking a hamburger at McDonald's or something like that, where yeah. it's a defined step, right? It's it's complex or it's complicated, not complex. But most of our jobs are complex and therefore um, having a job description doesn't work. And the magic of OKRs is once I describe the outcome, even for something like uh, closing a trouble ticket, it allows mm. the creativity of the individual to shine mm. through. So mm. if your objective is to uh, you know, make sure that we close every trouble ticket on first contact, in other words, fix it right the first time, yeah. that allows me, and maybe I solve that by um, getting on a Zoom call with a person. Maybe you solve it by taking them through a checklist. Maybe someone else solves it by emailing them the checklist and having them walk through it. If we, yeah. So long as they live within our values when they accomplish those activities and get the right outcome, that's what we're aiming for in OKR. So I'm going to argue they're all, having read that paper, they're all adaptive performance. I'm not... A hundred percent, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Um, you know, we we always advocate that OKRs work best when used for transformational activity. You know, activity that is going to take the business forward, take the organisation forward, not for repetitive activity. You know, any any mention of maintain in 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 OKRs is usually not a great not, not a great sign and this is where we have the distinction between um the the for, you know the the adaptive performance being kind of i guess evaluated you might say through OKRs and then the um uh, the tactical performance being more in the realm of um regular KPIs, regular KPIs that are, are, you know, are running to where they want to, where, where they need to be and hitting and hitting target. Although there was an interesting um, challenge recently and sorry to just go on, but I think it's worth just adding in um, where a client said, okay, so yeah, get this. Absolutely agree. Where do we categorize? Where do we put, um, regular operational improvement which is part of business as usual where we always expect our operations to improve by you know x percent each year efficiency or productivity or whatever 
it's not, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal that warrants a full transformation program. So it might not actually fall within the transformation OKRs. But what, what's what's what 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 happens there? Well, I'm and waiting with bated breath for your answer because I was going <laughs> to ask I was going to ask you exactly the same question. So, and the answer is, and the answer is you do still use OKRs for it. That was the, uh, that was the guidance that we gave to the client and it worked, it worked yeah. for, it worked for them. Yeah. So um, my phrase around the same thing. Um, I, I was hoping you're going to fall into a trap, my friend, but you didn't. So um, <laughs> yeah, uh, in, you know, different dimensionality of objectives. If you, we have run the business and changed the business, run the business with yeah. the day-to-day activities, change the business. Many yeah. people make the mistake of only looking at the change the business because that's big and exciting. Yeah. And there's many reasons I can, I can list the reasons why we do that. The dilemma is if you do it, you disenfranchise the 80% of the organization that work on keeping the lights on, that do those day-to-day activities. And the OKR system quickly fails because people go, gosh, this is only for senior management and those people working on projects. It doesn't help me feel connected to purpose. It doesn't help me recognize uh, the contribution I'm making or let my boss see the value I'm doing. And so, and of course, in any business, if you don't keep the lights on, you don't have the money to change the business anyways. So um, now to embellish that, just, you know, right here in Silicon Valley, it's 80% change the business, 20% run the business. When we work with clients like Bank of America, they're the opposite. They're 98% run the business, 2% change the business. And that's fine. It doesn't mean the OKRs are in proportion. So it doesn't mean that in Bank of America, 98% are run the business. I just need to have enough that I have my finger on the pulse of the run the business activities. Um, or I just need to have enough that I'm keeping my finger on the pulse of change the business. So don't think that the the mix of run the business versus change the business dictates the mix of your OKRs. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really important point to mention. God, we've really gone around the houses on this. We're supposed to be talking about performance evaluation. We are, but we are. And you know, the it many people on the performance evaluation, and we'll get to it eventually, the, the, the elephant in the room is, are people going to game the numbers? And we're going to get to that eventually. But these mm. other aspects are lingering immediately b- below the surface. As soon as you solve the game, the number question, these other questions come up. So about stretch goals, about tactical versus uh, you know change the business. So these all fit into context. It might be in the wrong sequence for what your listeners' brains have, but mm. they surface themselves the second you deal with the gaming question. Yeah, so the gaming question: Could people? I suppose there's gaming from 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 two perspectives of, of off the top of my head. There's the the sandbagging that people might decide actually just to, you know, only sign up to something that's that's dead easy and really achievable because they know they'll get the bonus that way. Um, and then the other is actually they just do something to kind of create the illusion that they're achieving the numbers when in fact that's not the case. Um, uh, my sense is transparency certainly helps with the latter. I'd be interested in you, in, in, in your, in your thoughts on the, on, on the four, on the first point. Well, so in a mechanical sense, it's easy to solve and we can, we can double click on that in a second, but I'm going to go to what I think is a compelling argument. And that is, the root cause of someone doing either of those gaming, you know, gaming the target or gaming the performance is a cultural issue. 
if yeah. your business has set itself up so that people think that cheating is the way to success, you have to solve that because you can never create enough structure in any system, let alone OKRs, to combat that uh, culture. I mean, the issue is uh, people are far too creative. Uh, and again, these are complex problems, not complicated. Complicated problems, assembling a car, I can solve with standard operating procedures. Complex problems, I have to just give guidelines and guardrails and allow people to work um, autonomously inside that scope. OKRs are in the latter world. They're about solving complex problems, which is any knowledge creating business. And we can't do that by having more and more standard operating procedures to limit the gamification. What I need to do is address the root cause, which is a culture in which people think that's the right behavior. Yeah, I completely agree. There is a cultural issue if people want to cheat. Right. Definitely. And I don't think it's that hard to fix. Uh, you know, gosh, how long have we known each other? Um, 10 years? 20 years? Anyway, uh, way back when, my, my, the, the, the indicator I used to use for my business was my cell phone. I recognized that uh, my cell phone minutes equated to business two months in the future. So all I have to do is track cell phone minutes, and I can pretty accurately predict how many consultants I need in the future. Now, if my consultants chose to game that number, they called up their sweeties and their uh, parents and their buddies to drive up the phone number, I would look at that key result and go, gosh, I don't need to work on selling any more work because we're going to have so much we don't know what to do with it. I'm going to throttle back. Two months in the future, all of a sudden we have no work to do because yeah. someone gamed the number. So it's easy to help people understand that gaming the number doesn't help us win. Uh, but we often think evil of people and try to solve the problem by putting in more guardrails as opposed to explaining the system. Yeah, uh, I I agree. I absolutely agree with you. I think the way the system, the way some systems can be set up is that it perhaps allows the individual who's gaming to achieve some sort of short-term gain. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of a few salespeople that I've worked with over the years who, you know, got themselves a nice fat uh, uh, commission payment and then head, headed for the door before the skeletons came out. Well, so. now, now look who's the old man. You could not, <laughs> you could not possibly make that work in today's world, right? So no, let's say I falsify my revenue. Well, the next day, I'd expect to see more, you know, helpline calls, like depending what business you're in, like more orders on the shop floor, more helpline calls, uh, you know, more accounting transactions going out the door. And then a couple of days later, I'd expect to see the next step in the process occur. Because our systems are so interconnected, I can't game my sales number and not see the impact of that almost immediately in the downstream processes. So the idea of gaming the number only worked when I had silo processes that did not yeah. link to each other. And yeah. so you're the Luddite here, buddy. That, doesn't, <laughs> that, that does not exist anymore. There's nowhere in the galaxy I know of where the processes are so dissociated. I could actually not only go through the quarter, but get my commission check and happily go. Now, back when I had hair, and maybe when you had hair too, oh, I forgot, this is a podcast, they don't know that. Um, mm. There's no possible way uh, that in the old days, people could do that. There's no possible way that can happen now. 
Yeah, which is the transparency side of things. And all right, right yet yeah, you're talking about transparency around the interconnectedness of systems nowadays. Yeah. That's not necessarily the transparency that OKRs provides, but OKRs certainly plays into that. Well, it so complements that. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but uh, <laughs> we should have shared objectives or shared key results, right? Mm. What does that mean? It means that the salesperson shouldn't get uh, recognized just for doing a sale. We all have stories of where salespeople have sold stuff that operations just cannot execute, right? Whether that's a software contract or manufacturing something. So let's have a shared key result so that sales is inclined to, so what we've noticed is many sales teams, you know, they've got their leaderboards and, and they, they encourage individual performance. As a generalization, I've never seen a marketing team that want to encourage uh, individual performance. Every single mm -hmm. marketing team, all those OKRs are about encouraging multiple departments to be in their meetings, multiple departments being part of the decision-making process. So we can actually use the OKRs to help satisfy that possibility of people gaming for individual benefit by forcing us to work as a team. Now, you know, the, the run-on sentence from there is about, you know, John's statement of you should use OKRs down to the individual level. 99.9% .9 of my clients are trying to encourage teamwork, not individual mm -hmm. performance. So don't Agreed. go to the individual level, only go to the team level. That way, if I see someone is lagging, I'm encouraged to go help them out, figure out what I can yeah. do to help them go forward. I have never, ever seen OKRs down to individual level work. I've never seen that. Not that we've tried to do it with clients, but clients have often asked us in when they've tried to do it for themselves and it's just caused an absolute beast of a uh, of, of a of an okr structure yeah and so it and so it becomes everything that they set out with the intentions of it avoiding you know in other words some sort of bureaucrat bureaucratic beast right which has to be realigned every quarter so i think we've uh, pummeled that poor pony about uh, falsifying your outcomes Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the other side of, of gamification, which is gaming the target. Now, mm -hmm. same issue. I would only game the target if there was a reward for successfully you know, overachieving. Now, part of how I see OKRs as a performance conversation is just as a performance conversation. You may have knocked, uh, using American metaphors, you may have knocked your sales number out of the ballpark. But it turns out that, you know, in a, what's that expression? A high tide rises all ships. You know, if you're in a booming economy, yeah. maybe doing 100% of target is not good enough. That's only a mediocre performance. And maybe, you know, in uncertain times of recession, doing 50% of target is awesome. So all these target numbers are just informing the conversation. Now, the trick is, we need way more skilled leaders having those performance conversations because it's not just by rote, you did 120%, you get 120% of your, of, of your compensation model. No, I agree. I think that is, uh, that's a really important point that the, con the context matters hugely when you're setting a target. Yeah, and, and so uh, the only way that I could win by gaming the number is if, I, in a crazy world somehow, uh, I can't imagine it happening these days, but in a crazy world, we set the target in January 
And uh, by March, we assumed that was you know, written in, uh, on a stone tablet. And that was absolutely the number and mm. like that. It, there's got to be a conversation. Yeah. Now, I'm going to uh, sort of go a bit sideways here for a second, because, again, I think we've that, that point has now been flogged to death. Um, I want to talk about what a good compensation model looks like. So traditionally, in a good compensation model, if I have a formula-based reward system, so you get uh, a percentage of EBITDA at the end of the period, the criteria has to be that it's a lagging measure that you can audit. In other words, in yeah. a traditional compensation system, if I look at the same system, you look at it and come to a different conclusion, that, mm -hmm. that is not going to work in a compensation model because it's what I call an unfair game. I can, you know, as a boss, I can tilt the uh, the table yeah. anywhere I want. The fair game is when um, I understand what the target is. It's an auditable number. You know, you look at the process. I look at the process. We came up with the same number. Uh, and then secondly, it usually, therefore, is a lagging measure. It has to do with something that you actually achieved as opposed to a leading measure. Yeah. So I want to dig into both of those for a second. So... Um, the idea of it being um, uh, a fair game that you look at it and I look at it seems to go in the face of a stretch goal because a stretch goal is you just make up a number. So in that world, what we tend to say is for your stretch goal, let's think of best possible. So uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in downtown San Francisco to get out to, uh, uh, you know, Apple's going to take me about an hour and a half of a drive right now, because uh, it's just heading towards rush hour. But if I went there at two o'clock in the morning, I could get there in about 20 minutes. So the best possible is 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm using the same car, my same competency, the same assets, road, street signs, same guidelines. Um, but I'd have to go at two o'clock in the morning. So, but it's a fair game because if you looked at the best possible, and I look at the best possible, we come up with the same number. Yeah. So it's a stretch goal. Now, I'm not going to get up at two o'clock in the morning, but now I can use my autonomy and creativity to solve the puzzle. Maybe I choose to go at six o'clock in the morning and do my workout down in San Jose as opposed to up here. Or maybe um, I choose to uh, work from the hotel till 10 o'clock in the morning and it's not as busy. It's still going to take me an hour, but it's not an hour and a half. So mm -hmm. now I have the autonomy to make decisions, so long as I live within our values, to get better performance. So on the first part of having um, you know, that auditable outcome, but accommodating stretch goals, ideas like this best possible as the goal is an approach to tackle that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see, I see where you're coming from with that. Um, it's... So, so you're suggesting, you're proposing that it, it's the best possible, or the key result that's set at that particular threshold, which reward is calculated against. Right. So if I loop back the beginning of our conversation, that's what I call a type two objective. I know all yeah. the steps, right? Get in the car, get my coffee, drive down. Like I know all the steps. Now it's a matter of with autonomy, how do I optimize around my competencies, my life, my personal life balance, all those things to get the best possible outcome. Now yeah. the conversation with my boss about that is about 
the skill set, the creativity I used to optimize that equation. So mm. boss sets the goal of 20 minutes, I come in an hour, we don't have a debate about whether it should have been 58 minutes or 57 minutes. We go, well, that's interesting. So, um, you know, what work, you know, what's the learn for? What did you do that really worked? And you can build on what did you learn that didn't work that we should throttle back on? And now I can coach you for the next quarter based on what we learned. I'm, you know, the 20 minutes is still what that target looks like. It's completely unachievable unless you go two o'clock in the morning. But based on what you want to do, how about we pay for your um, your club uh, membership down here in San Jose? Mm. I go, oh, that's interesting. So that means I, you know, I can get up earlier, do my workout down there, or um, you know, what if? And so now it's a conversation between the organization and the individual mm. based on the concept of best possible and. You know, where is the benefit equation for the business and the individual? What is the fair game? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The second part that I said was uh, that um, yeah, the, the, the idea of it being uh, auditable. In other words, I can, it's a, a lagging measure. Mm -hmm. So uh, the dilemma with leading and lagging measures. And as you know, my background is I helped write the books that came up with that concept of the balance scorecard back in, in Harvard. The mm. dilemma is anytime I think of a leading and lagging measure, I've created silos in the organization, right? Sales lagging measure, did they actually close the sale, is the leading measure for the next step of the process. Mm. So as soon as I have leading and lagging measures, by definition, I've bifurcated the organization. So in the the reward and recognition realm, we need to make sure, I call them a shared objective or shared key result before, you could describe them as they should be cross-functional. In mm -hmm. other words, let's yeah. get over these artificial lead lag barriers because they're naturally creating a competitive environment in the organization. What if we were aligned? What if we said, um, we wanna do everything we can to optimize the order to cash cycle? So the order to cash cycle, includes every single department in the organization. How can we shorten that as much as possible? And maybe I can shorten it as much as possible by spending more time with the customer up front and getting the, the detailed design done correctly so that my sprints are more focused and the story points are aligned and so forth. Or maybe I can do it far better by um, bringing operations earlier in the sales process. Like there are many yeah. ways to optimize that equation what we're trying to do with OKRs is that adaptive performance, which is saying, what is the, the big picture and how can we adapt the organization around what I call both pillars and anchors? So pillars are things you can't move. If you move those things, the building falls over. Anchors are things that you've arbitrarily dropped in the water. You can just lift up and move. So yeah. let's figure out where are the, the pillars uh, and anchors within that shared objective. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we've got a different opportunity to optimize the equation. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really, really key point, and it's something you know you you mentioned <clears throat> um, uh, that ninety nine percent of your clients want to use them for team rather than individual. I would actually go further to say that I think ninety nine percent of our clients, and this may well be the case for yours actually not just want to use them for 
for for team, but want to use them for cross-functional team. Yeah, because this the silo silofication, if that's a phrase, if it isn't, I'm going to I'm going to trademark it. It's is it, is just endemic in organisations, which is which is remarkable considering that there is so much technology available now to to help us all collaborate, but there is still. Uh, there are still challenges. There are still barriers in place. Um, right. And, and so, I think, I've, sorry, I was just going to say, and I think a lot of that is probably down to the way that budgets are put together. But please go on. Well, you could throw rocks at many different places. Um, if I think of uh, football or what people over here in America would call soccer, um, you know, the, the beautiful sport is all about the harmony between the departments. The goalie department works with uh, defense, works with midfield, works with forwards, and we all figure out how to work within our job function, but work harmoniously as a team. So it's immensely doable. Mm. So therefore, any reason when it doesn't occur has to be because of incorrect guidelines in the organization. And I believe... Um, and you might as well, that OKR solve that problem. Yeah. So long as they're designed well, so long as they're used with, uh, I, I, this is something that we do with clients and we, we, you know, we have to temper sometimes a client's desire to get going with writing their OKRs with actually, you know, just give us a few minutes to let's work out how you're going to use them once you've got them, because right. just having them doesn't change the world. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so I think we've sort of uh, touched on all the major topics uh, mm. associated with it. Each one could almost be a podcast in itself. Mm. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what feedback you get back from this conversation to see whether uh, there's value in us drilling into each of these concepts in, in more detail because both you and I have many more layers of answers behind each one of these concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brett, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Uh, it's always good to go toe-to-toe with you. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're back and... to silos again. <laughs> what you meant to say, it's always good to develop this shared knowledge going forward. Well, yeah, which we get through discussion and debate, which is great. Uh, thank you, Socrates. <laughs> so uh, thank you for tuning in to Giant Talk. Hope you've really enjoyed this uh, this episode uh, as much as we have and that it's perhaps answered a few questions for you around the thorny issue of uh, reward and OKRs. I dare say you might even have a few more questions that have come up. Uh, you know how to get hold of me. You can find me at There Be Giants. Brett, how can people get hold of you? Uh, easiest way is to get hold of me through you. Oh, okay. All right. Fine. Fair enough. And I, I, uh, I know where to reach you. So, <laughs> okay. 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 Well, thank you for your time. I've enjoyed this chit chat. No problem. And you enjoy your time in San Francisco. I'll do my best. <laughs>